As I came to our passage this morning, I was trying to figure out a title that I can use other than the parable of the talents. It's just kind of a general title. And I thought about the tragedy of unwanted opportunity. Come share with your master's happiness. The day of reckoning. The glad to the sad. All of which would work fairly well, but I ended up with, what in the world are you doing? Because this parable is one of strong encouragement, but it's also one of strong warning. And it has to do with what we are doing now with the opportunity that God has given to us. Scripture calls for all of us to make the most of every spiritual opportunity. From the beginning of Scripture to the end, we're called to maximize our privileges that God has given us. In Ecclesiastes 11.1, we are reminded to cast our bread upon the waters where we shall find it after many days. We're told to sow your seed in the morning and at evening. Let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed. In other words, we better take advantage of every opportunity. Don't just assume that since you've done one thing, then you can just sit back and be lazy and not do anything else. Because one missed opportunity may be wasted. Proverbs 10.5 tells us, He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. In Isaiah 55.6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him While he is near. In Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pastures, the flock under His care. Today, today, He said, if only you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Folks, today is the opportune time, the appointed time, the acceptable time to make a decision to worship the Lord and to serve Him. The same thoughts repeated in Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In 2 Corinthians 6.2, it's all through Scripture. Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This This is urgency. Why is it so urgent? Because tomorrow may be too late. Even Jesus called us to make the most of the moment, to make the most of the spiritual privilege that He has given to us. In John chapter 12, we read, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have light so that you may become children of light. Again, calling us to take advantage of the spiritual opportunity. So with that in mind, uh, we want to turn our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 30. Now this is a very familiar passage, that uh, parable that we usually just know of as a parable of the talents. Now the word talent is not the term that we use today in the same way that they used back in the time of Jesus. A talent was a term of measurement. Like we would use a term pound or kilo or, or a ton. A talent of silver in Israel weighed about 100 pounds. A talent of gold in Israel weighed about 200 pounds. So the talent is not what weighs, it's what's in the talent. 
So no matter what the substance you use, it was of significant value that Jesus is talking about here. So for it to make a little bit more sense, and I'm telling you this because of the translation of the NIV that we're using this morning, the NIV translates the word talent as bags of gold. Um, the Greek just uses the word talent, does not mention gold. So the substance of the weight was not the point in the parable. So with that in mind, let's read our passage for this morning. Matthew chapter 25, verse, starting with verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, and the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one who, with two bags of gold, gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of the gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever has will be given more and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A parable of encouragement, a parable of warning. Jesus starts out by saying, again it will be like. Again refers back to the parable he just talked about that we looked at last week. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. And he says that this parable that I'm about to tell you has the same message, a similar message as the one I just told you. He says, it will be like. What will be like? Well, it refers to when Christ comes back at his second coming. And so he's saying, don't forget the context in in which I am telling you this parable so you can understand what I am saying. In the text, there are three servants in the household, at least three that he went to, uh, that he referred to. Two are good and one is bad. And just as in the previous parable, Jesus is saying that within the body of so-called believers, and we talked about that last week, there are those who are genuine children of God, and there are those who are ingenuine 
Among the true, there are the false. We've been learning that all through the Gospel of Matthew as we've been going through. There's a good soil and there's a bad soil. There's the houses with foundations. There's the houses without foundation. There are those who are bridesmaids with oil and those without oil. There are the wheat and the tares all together. And now we have true servants and there are false servants in this parable. You know, sometimes it's really, really hard to distinguish between the two, particularly within a church body, the true from the false, because their actions look good. They've got the Christianese language down well, but there's, there are many who don't have a genuine relationship with the Lord. It's kind of like the businessman I read about who had just opened up his new business and he had set up his office and he had his table, desk and everything and he was so excited about getting his new, a new client. And so he was sitting there kind of just waiting for his new client and a man comes to the door and as soon as he comes, comes in, he wants to impress him. So he grabs a phone and picks it up and he starts talking to presumably the president of the company. And he's talking, and he did most of the talking, uh, sharing all the brilliance of how the president should be doing this and that, the other, answering with wise answers to the questions that the, that the president was asking him. And then after the man who came in had been standing there a long time waiting for the phone call to end, the, the, the man hung up the phone and said, yeah, I, I'm really sorry, excuse me for taking so long. That, that was the president of the company. Um, what can I do for you? And the man says, oh, nothing. Um, I just came up to hook up your phone. Unfortunately, <laughs> there are some people who want us to believe they're having a conversation with God but the phone's not hooked up. The church has to be discerning. Church leaders must be prayerfully discerning because sometimes it's really hard to, to distinguish. Why is that important? In our Bible study in Second Peter on Sunday evenings and Tuesday evenings, in chapter 2, Peter warns the believers about false teachers. And he says this, There will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who, who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And this picture this morning, in this morning's parable, is a picture of the kingdom within the outward visible kingdom here on earth, within the church, if you will. We have the true, we have the false. And again, this is a parable of warning. Jesus is simply saying, I'm coming back. When I come back, I'm going to separate the true from the false. I'm going to separate the wheat from the tares. I'm going to separate the homes that are built on solid foundation and those that are not. And in the next parable, in a couple of weeks, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. His point being, you better be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. He has reiterated that statement five times times. Though each of these parables are parables of warning, last week's and this week's, um, that for us to be prepared, the parable of the bridesmaids, if you remember, that was uh, emphasizing watching, being ready, being prepared for when the bridegroom comes. The parable of talents emphasizes working, serving, and fulfilling our duty, being faithful while we're waiting. We're not to sit back in spiritual laziness. And as we watch and wait for the Lord, being alert for His company, we are to be diligent and faithful in what He's asked us to do. 
Now, we find this parable twice in the gospel, which is kind of interesting. Um, Different times, different situations, actually. The first time is given publicly in Luke chapter 19. Um, There it's called the parable of the minas. Uh, the mina, uh, a mina is a coin worth three months' wages, so it's, it's, it's a, a decent coin worth a goodly amount. And a couple of days later then, he tells the same parable in private to his disciples here in Matthew 25. Now, although there are several differences between the two parables, the similarities are even stronger. Both parables describe how Jesus' disciples should act between his ascension, when he goes back to the Father, and his second return. That's the time frame that Jesus is going to be away. So what's the context of the parable of the talents? Well, here in Matthew, we know that Jesus is in a private teaching with his disciples. You remember that. He's up on the Mount of Olives. He's only got his disciples together. Last teaching, last instructions for his disciples. Um, to be looking for the time of his return, the second coming. On the other hand, in Luke's gospel, it's interesting, that was given just several days earlier as he's on his way into Jerusalem for the last time. You remember we talked about that situation in Matthew when he had to pass through Jericho and uh, the little, little guy Zacchaeus was there and so he had his little conversation with Zacchaeus. It was right after that that he told this parable the parable of the minas, the parable of the talents. And it was directed to the crowd of people that were following him, that were around him, that were excited that they were with Jesus and they were, they were, follow, they were followers of him. Apparently, this parable was so important that Jesus teaches it twice. Once privately, once publicly. And while both stories have the same outcome, Jesus adds a few details in his public teaching. But the major details of the point of the uh, endpoints that say the same. Now, the main difference, what are those? The main difference is that Jesus tells a parable in Luke to warn them that the kingdom of God was not imminent as they had expected. It says in Luke 19, while they were listening to this, while he was having this conversation with Zacchaeus and all that stuff was going on, he went on to tell them a parable, this parable of the minas, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We've talked about that concept. And even the disciples thought that he was going to come back immediately. And that's why he taught that, disciple, uh, that, that, that parable there. In Matthew, however, this parable warns them to keep on the lookout for the new kingdom that they're going to be expecting. To be ready, to be prepared for his return. So, with that in mind, kind of a little bit of background, a little bit of context, let's take a look at the story. Now, the plot of the story is relatively simple. A man leaves on a journey and trusts his estate or some of his wealth to several servants. And this is where Luke's story gets interesting because it adds that it was a rich man who was attempting to become a king of a distant land probably through diplomatic measures. Uh, Luke says, quote, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. But this man is hated by the people. So while he is traveling to the distant land, land, the local council sends a delegation to urge the distant government not to make him king. Now, there's a historical parallel here, one that the crowds around Jesus at that moment did not get, probably couldn't have caught, because the story parallels Jesus himself. 
In just over a week, many in that crowd who are praising Him, who are following Him, that are so glad to be with Him, they're going to be shouting in a week's time, crucify Him. Just like the man in the story who went away to become king, so will Jesus. And the locals hated Him. But despite the protests, (laughs) Jesus is going to return as king. Fascinating. So what does this mean to us? Well, first of all, as we get into this parable, we need to know the responsibility that we receive. The responsibility that we receive. Within the framework of the kingdom, we have each received a great responsibility. Look at verses 14 and 15 here. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now again, the parable is very simple. It's a story about a man who has a number of servants. He goes away, leaves them with, in charge of what he possesses, and he divides those possessions out with five, two, and one, giving them responsibilities according to their abilities. And the idea is that they are to handle that in such a way that when he returns, there will be a return. That's, that's his expectation. And knowing that he's going to be gone for a long time, he wants to make sure that his fortune or his money will be used wisely and continue to make a profit. And when Jesus, Jesus used the words talent, his audience thought about money, not, not skills and abilities like we would think of today. However, we do need to think more broadly than just the money that God has entrusted to us. The symbol of money is the, in, in the parable represents all the resources that God has given to us. But first and foremost is the salvation that He offers. But beyond that, it would be our money, our abilities, time, opportunities, giftings that we are to use because of the salvation that He presents to us in the beginning. But the main resource, the main opportunity, the main privilege that has been given to us is the privilege of being exposed to the truth of God and the opportunity of salvation. And some people are fives. They've been given an amazing privilege, an abundance of opportunity. Most of us here in the church would be fives as we look at it in that sense, because we've been given great opportunity to hear the gospel every week. Uh, It's it's been uh, preached and taught and demonstrated in the various classes that we have. On the other hand, there are some folks who would be on the level of the one who received one talent. Their exposure to the gospel is minimal. Now perhaps because they may be in a church that preaches mostly fluff, or are focused mostly and almost completely on social works. Uh, That's where they're oriented. And and the body is being taught very little. Now remember, Jesus is talking about people who profess to be within the walls of the kingdom. All those who profess to be true believers. We have differing privileges spiritually in being exposed to the gospel. And that's responsibility that we each receive It's a huge responsibility. That's our privilege. That's our gospel opportunity. And the question comes back, what have we been doing with it? And unfortunately, there are some people with all that privilege who don't respond. And that's what the parable is all about. 
So what should be our response or react or our reaction? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, verse 16 says, "The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more." Do you realize that's a hundred percent return in the investment the Lord gave him? That's amazing. He maximized his spiritual privilege. He gave the Lord all he had, and he gave a full 100% return. He's illustrating for us the kind of person who makes the most of their spiritual opportunity, the one who believed the gospel that he heard and who gave it back to the Lord by a life of full service. And then you have verse 17, So also the one with two bags gained two more. The servant who received two did the very same thing. He had less of a privilege in terms of of comparing him with the five, but he made the full use of the privilege that he did have. He fulfilled all that he could, could from the opportunity God gave him and then returned a full service based on the privilege and opportunity that had been given to him. You know, that's all that God expects, right? 100%. That's what he expects. Take up your cross. That means we need to lay down our life. Die to self. Submit yourselves then to God. He wants our all. Do you know what's encouraging about this though? God is not expecting that everybody be fives in terms of opportunity. Some will be twos. Some will be threes. And that's okay. We can't all be Billy Grahams, right? I wish. But that's all right. God's not expecting that unless you're Billy Graham. The point is that God does give us, an, uh, in what He does give us in opportunities and, in, and abilities, He expects a return from that. Then we come to verse 18. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now there's the mark of a false servant, a false believer. He did nothing with the opportunity that was given to him. He made no effort. He made no decision except to not do anything. He's not a true believer. He's a bridesmaid, if you will, without oil. There's no fruit in his life. There's no inward grace in his life. There's no transformation that takes place. When he hears the gospel, he doesn't respond to it. Even though he's heard it on a limited basis, he still has a responsibility. Now listen, and this is important to clarify. You can hear the gospel on a five level and not respond. It happens. Even though he's heard it, um, many times one could decide not to accept. And we have people that are in churches, that go to churches consistently, that have that opportunity and who do not respond. And I think the reason that Jesus used the one-talent person as an example, because a one-talent person can give a 100% return. But the reason Jesus, I believe, gave the one-talent person as an example is because he wants to illustrate that the person who would seem to be the most excusable is not. Oh, they just didn't have much opportunity. They'll be fine. They're not excusable. 
Paul tells us in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood from what has been made. He's talking about His creation, what He created. You can see that in His creation, so that people are without excuse. And you know, as I was looking at that verse, it all of a sudden dawned on me. Do you know why the theory of evolution has been pushed so strongly in the world? Because Satan does not want people to see God's eternal power and divine nature in his creation. Get God out of that. They can't see that. Satan knows what can be seen by creation. The God's creation, folks, which Jesus spoke into being according to John 1 and Genesis 1.1 is still there. Every person exposed to the gospel, no matter how little or how much, will be called on to give an account for how they responded. And that takes us to our next point, the accounting. There's going to come, become a, there's going to come a time of accounting, a time of reckoning. There's coming a time of counting. Uh, verse 19 says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Again, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to be away for an extended period of time, but the day is coming. They knew that. The day is coming when an accounting will be called for, so be ready and be prepared. And the word is a commercial term, the term for accounting. It means to compare accounts. He's going to come back and take a look at the books, as it were. Take a look at what we've done with the privilege and with the opportunities, with the giftings that he's given to us. It's going to be judgment time. It's a time for evaluating the service that has been rendered, finding out who the true servants are. So the man comes back to check on his servants, and verse 20 tells us what, what happens here. He says, the man who had uh, received five bags of gold brought to him another five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. And the emphasis here is on the bags of gold, and he's excited about it. He can actually face judgment, the reckoning time with his master, with excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation. Because he knows what he's done with his opportunities. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, 17, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence. When? At the day of judgment. We can have boldness. We can have confidence. No fear. He also says in the second chapter, John does, uh, 1 John, verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in Him so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Isn't that amazing? There ought to be in our hearts no fear of the coming of the Lord, but only great anticipation because it will be our privilege to demonstrate to Him at that moment the service that we have rendered. We should be able to say, along with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, says Paul, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We should be looking forward to that with anticipation. 
As a great hymn says, oh, what glory that will be. I find the master's response fascinating in verse 21. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. He wasn't remarking on the profits that his servant received. He wasn't thinking about all the extra money that he was gaining. He was making a statement about the man's character. Good and faithful. The Greek words refer to the character of a person. He's saying it's excellent, it's good, inherently good, good inwardly, genuinely good, and reliable, trustworthy, faithful servant. He's not saying because of what you did and all the money that you gave me. He's saying because of who you are. I know I can trust you with a lot more. Come, he said, and share your master's happiness. Aren't those words that we all want to be hearing one day? Come and share in your master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. So the man with the five talents actually receives three commendations in that that verse. Uh, One, verbally, well done, good and faithful servant. Secondly, he's made responsible for even greater things. And thirdly, he's to enter into the joy of the Lord. The second man also, who was faithful in two talents receives the same three commendations. There's nothing about the fact that he received two and the other received five. He did everything and, and gave him full, uh, full return. What an amazing day that's going to be when we receive those commendations. Those who have truly served and loved the Lord. Ah, but then there's verses 24 and 25. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. This is the flip side of the coin. We're going from rejoicing to remorse. We're going from the glad to the sad. Now these particular verses have troubled a lot of Christians. Because they describe God harshly, they they describe God as unfair, even as a criminal. How can that be? What do you do with verses like this? Well, we need to consider the source of the comments. The source of the comments. See, here's, here's one who professes to believe. He says he's a servant. He belongs to the household. He's in the, state, in the estate, if you will. He says he's a steward. He says his goal in life is to serve the master. I mean, that's what he's hired for. But there are two things that, that give him away. One is he produced nothing. There was no fruit. And secondly, he attacks the character of his master. Look at verse 24 again. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. He's saying, I know you, and I know that you are a hard man. The thing thing to remember is that this is his opinion that he is expressing. It doesn't have, may not have anything to do, it probably doesn't have anything to do with the truth of the matter. Now, we don't want to mischaracterize this particular man. 
There's nothing in in this parable that indicates that he is anti-God or that he is an atheist or that he is anti-Christ or that he is wicked, vile, God-hating person. That's not put into here. Jesus says he's a servant. He says he belongs. He doesn't waste his master's good like the unjust servant did in Luke 16. He, he doesn't spend um, everything uh, obnoxiously like the prodigal son in Matthew 15 or Luke 15. He doesn't embezzle like the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just does nothing at all. He's an illustration of a man who just wasted opportunity. And that's tragic. He lived in the environment of salvation. He said he served the Lord, but he didn't. The reason we know that is because there is no fruit. He just hid it in the ground. And then he tried to blame his master. He said, you're a hard man. He uses the word scleros. We get our word sclerosis from that. Arteriosclerosis, the hardening of arteries. You're hard. You're unforgiving, you're unrelenting, you're unbending, you're ungracious, you're unkind, you, you lack compassion, you're too tough, you're, you're, you've got no sensitivity. So because you're like that, that's why I acted the way I did. It's your fault. Hmm. Now, I don't believe for a minute that anything the man said or thought was true. The man's functioning out of fear and rebellion He didn't want to do what was necessary. And we see that today. God's just too tough. Religion is hard and it's difficult. You know, all those commands, all those do's and don'ts. No freedom. You You can't have a good time. It's just too hard. God's just too unbending and too condemning. He's too judgmental and too ungracious. I know, because if God was really a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? That wasn't all. This man said to him, You're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Do you understand what that means? Stealing somebody else's crops. When you harvest what you didn't sow, that means you've gone into somebody else's field and you've harvested his crops. That's an outrageous accusation. Folks, Does he know the God that we know? How could anyone who really knows the Lord characterize him as ungracious, unmerciful, lacking in compassion, lacking in love? The person doesn't know the Lord at all. There's no relationship there. And just like this man didn't know his master at all, he pretended to be a servant, but he doesn't know his master. There was no close relationship You know, one of the greatest joys in life, I'm sure you've experienced it, when you know Jesus is to serve Him and let Him receive all the glory and honor. Anyone who says, I don't want to do that because He gets all the glory, is a person who doesn't understand who the Lord is. There's no submission in the heart. They don't serve the Lord. They're self-serving. They're actually blind to the Master's kindness, blind to His grace, His mercy, His compassion, and yes, His love. So they lash out and build this hedge of excuses around themselves to protect their misperceived ideas. 
And in verse 25, the servant says, I was afraid. I was afraid of you because you're such an unbending, un- ungracious master. And if I went out to try to invest your money and try to gain something uh, and lost it all, I'm, I'm sure you'd, just, you'd punish me. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. So the master says to him, Oh, I am so sorry you felt that way. I didn't mean to scare you. I'm so sorry I offended you. What can I do to make you feel better? How can I change to make you feel comfortable with me? Is that what he said? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Look at verse 26. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. He didn't try to console. This man had been in his employ. He's been a part of the community of servants. He had ample opportunity to see his master at work and to see what kind of character his master had. And he probably had friends outside. I'm surmising. It doesn't say. Friends outside very easily could have been jealous of the wealthy man, as many are today, and fed him lies about his master that, you know, the only way he could be rich is if he stole and did uh, and unethically kind of worked the system. So very well, this man could have started to believe those lies rather than really getting to know the master. And so the master says, you are a wicked and lazy servant. You chose evil, and you made no effort to take advantage of the privilege to hear the redeeming truth of God. And then he says this, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not uh, uh, scattered seed? Question mark is a question. Now don't misunderstand this question. The master is not admitting that this is what he does. He's asking a question. So you knew? So this is your perception? Really? This is your truth? That I do this kind of thing? And then he says in effect, if you knew that, verse 27, well then... You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And that shows that the man was both wicked and lazy. He's wicked in the fact that he disobeyed and rebelled against his master and his desires, refusing to do what he wanted. He was lazy in the fact that he didn't even just walk down to the local bank, for goodness sake, and deposit the money to gain interest. How easy would that have been? It probably took more effort to go and dig a hole and put a couple hundred pounds of gold or whatever it was into that hole and bury it than it was to walk down to the bank and deposit it. To me, that shows or indicates even a greater wickedness because he was making sure that the master wouldn't gain any more wealth. It seems to me that there must have been an intent in that. Jesus says, you are a wicked man and your laziness is beyond the pale. He saw right through the man and saw and right through the excuses that he was using. And folks, God sees right through us. And he sees and understands our lame excuses. And then we see the reward. What happens to these servants? Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him, the one with the one talent who buried it, and give it to the one who has ten bags. Why him? It doesn't say. You can ask Jesus when you get to heaven. 
was probably the best able to carry it. He, he had shown the most trustworthiness and the, the most uh, dependability and responsibility. But you know, when, when we show our genuine desire to serve the Lord in humility, the Lord takes note of that. And He then lays upon us greater responsibility because He knows that He can trust us. Oftentimes, He will start us off small and He will increase and increase. And that's why He says in 20, uh, verse 29, For whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. With the ones who are pretending to serve the Lord, there will come a day when God will take away their privilege forever. Remember, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns, there are no second chances. Today is the day to make a decision. The end of verse uh, verse 29 and verse 30 says this, Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a sad and tragic day that's going to be. You see, the moment that you face God, this will become a reality. The judgment, the reckoning, the accounting. Whether our service was true, whether our service was false. It's a scary thing to realize that there are bridesmaids within the church body, with no oil in their lamp. That there are servants who think that when the Lord comes, it's all going to be okay. And it isn't. Folks, God has given us an amazing opportunity to know Him, to really know Him. And He expects us to build that relationship with Him and have that relationship. He has, as we might say, bend over backwards for us. Have you ever read John 3.16 personally? For God so loved me personally that He gave His one and only Son that if I believe in Him, I will not perish, but I will have eternal life. What a verse. What are you going to do with that opportunity? Once we have taken advantage of the opportunity to, to know the Lord and to submit to Him as Lord and Master of our lives, what in the world are we doing with it? He has invested in us, folks. He has invested the life of His one and only Son in us. And He is expecting a return in His investment. He is expecting our lives to be multiplied in other lives. Go and make disciples of all nations, he said. What what in the world are we doing? There will come a day of reckoning. And the question is, are we ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? In two weeks, we're going to be looking at the separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep will be taken to be with the lamb. (laughs) Makes sense, right? The goats will be thrown into a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. At this moment, right now, today, which one are you? A lamb or a goat? Sheep or a goat? Folks, we need to be working for the Lord until His return and be ready. Father, this morning we thank you for the investment of Jesus Christ that you have put into our lives, the investment of your Holy Spirit to fill us and to use us, to empower us, to gift us. 
so that we can use our bodies, every aspect of our bodies, as instruments of righteousness for your glory and for your honor. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts this morning and that you would indicate to us where we are lacking, where we can step up, where we can do better. Father, our lives need to be fully submitted to you. We are to take up your cross. We are not to be thinking about self. We are to die to self, in fact. And with that, we, you have made us alive in Jesus Christ through the filling of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would use us to glorify your name. Let us give you 100% and let us see lives changed. We ask this in Jesus' name.